You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're lo- we're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we've got a busy week this week because, of course, we got uh, UFC 264 coming up this weekend, likely going to be one of the UFC's biggest events of the year with the third fight between Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor. In the main event, Uh, we also are going to talk a little bit about the UFC's decision to put on an interim heavyweight title fight coming up at UFC 265 and what that means for Francis Ngannou, etc, etc. We're playing a little catch up this week because you were out last week on vacation. We're not really going to have rounds this week. We're just going to kind of do a little listener mail here up front and then talk about that other stuff kind of for as long as it takes. But before we get into it. As I just mentioned, you are freshly returned from the Great American Road Trip. Uh, it doesn't appear, at least to the naked eye, that you have suffered any manner of injuries or, uh, you know, psychic terrors, traumas. How was it? You you are returned. What were you out there doing as you trekked across Montana with your children? Well, first of all, while I was gone, you had... Fernando Prates sit in for me on the CME live chat. That's right. Over on the Patreon page, uh, which costs $1, by the way, per month. If you want to get an extra hour of this podcast every week, uh, the live chat, anything can happen. Ben was out of town. So I called in a, a favor to Fernanda. She came in uh, on pretty short notice, 24 hours notice or so, sat in, got pretty good reviews from the commenters over there on the Patreon page. And so, uh, yeah, it was it. Uh, it went off well by all accounts. Now, I went back and I watched the video. I went to the tape. Okay. And I don't know if I've ever seen you so happy. There was a joy. There was a light in your eyes that, frankly, I have not seen for many years. Yeah. As when, as when we together do the live chat. Um, was she better than me? Just tell me the truth. Don't spare my feelings. I mean, I've said this in the past. You know this, that like whenever I go on someone else's podcast, and I guess Fernanda kind of made history here as the first full-time, full episode guest host in the history of the CMA. But whenever that happens, it's always really strange for me to do a podcast with someone who is nice to me. Uh, And like, it's, it's, it's just like a different experience. And so, yeah, uh, it was, it was a, you know, it was like calling in a relief pitcher. You know, Fernanda came in and gave us four solid innings. She struck out the side, her second inning up, and we got we got nothing but good things to say about it. Listen, you ungrateful motherfucker. I'm the nicest person you know, goddammit. Mm-hmm. I'm so fucking nice. Yeah. I'm too nice mm-hmm. to you, yep. honestly. Yeah, no, that's clear. Son of a bitch. Are you going to, uh, can you answer my question? Tell us what you did on your vacation now that you're done okay. with your little, uh, your little sidetrack there. We uh, we took a road trip, me and my daughters, all across Montana. They, if you ask them, they will tell you that it was a lovely tour of Montana's various hotel pools. Okay, yeah. Because that was very much the highlight for them. They 
when asked, they're like, oh, how was Bozeman? They're like, oh, the pool in Bozeman is amazing. Uh, when you ask them about any of the many educational opportunities that I shoehorned into this trip, uh, the, the many museums we visited, the things we learned about Montana's rich state history, you know, they retained a little bit of it. They're a little fuzzy. But uh, the pools, you know, nobody marks out harder for a hotel pool than like an eight-year-old. Yeah. yeah. It's just the absolute best thing in the world to them. I've traveled with children before. I know what it's like. Uh, unless you have any further opening remarks, I figure we just get into this uh, this listener mail here, and then from there we can we can segue into talking a little bit about the heavyweight title, and then uh, maybe a little bit about Dustin Poirier and Conor McGregor down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, let me tell you something. When I was headed out on this vacation, it was like Monday afternoon. I'm hitting the road, and I open up the Twitter to see that we're doing an interim title fight in the heavyweight division. I was like, God damn it. I just, I turned my back on you guys for one minute and this is how you do me. I was like, had the, the, the fingers were just itching to get on there and write an angry column and I had to let it go. I had to just, I had to let that one slide, but now I'm back and I got some shit to say. You're going to get your chance today. Uh, first though, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Ross in Ohio. He writes, Justin Guitar Hero Janes committed his show money to a bet on himself. After some internet sleuthing, I discovered that the Guitar Hero was riding a three-fight losing streak into this fight, dating back to August of 2020. Uh, Is his betting a commentary on the financial desperation faced by those who only get show money or just an ill-advised move since he ended up losing now ben we had talked about this before you went on your vacation uh justin james reportedly put his entire show money purse down on himself to defeat charles rosa in their featherweight fight in the prelims over there at uh ufc fight night 190 back on june 26th this is the one that was headlined by cyril gone versus alexander volkov back when when we didn't even know the kind of shit we were about to get into no uh justin james did not win maybe adding insult to injury he does he suffered a split decision loss to charles rosa uh this as a couple of guys who recently took up the betting life this one speaks to us Mm -hmm. uh directly what what kind of words let's say let's say you sat down across the the table from justin james this morning what kind of words could you put out there to pick him up to tell him hey man Dust yourself off. Get back out there. Let's maybe take some smaller bites next time, but we'll put some, we'll put some bets down next week. What I wonder is is he now totally fucked on taxes because it's going to you know the UFC is going to report to the IRS having paid you as an independent contractor. And I don't think you could just go to the IRS and be like, oh, no, see, I ain't got that money because I bet it on myself and I lost. And so it's just gone. Like, they're going to be like, you know, whatever your your 30 or 40 grand or whatever it was in show money, they're going to be like, especially you're an independent contractor, you're getting taxed at a terrible rate. They're going to be like, okay, where is our, you know, 40 damn percent of this or, or whatever it is. And you can't just be like, oh, I, I see, I, I gambled and lost it. Like, I think you can write off, like, to some extent, some, like, gambling losses, but I don't, I think you're still, you could be in trouble come tax time if you were already in a tough financial situation and then this happens. Like, that, that could get tricky. See, so what your assumption is was that just when Justin Jaynes put this bet down and told us he had bet his show money, he did not mean his show money 
minus the 30% he had already committed to the to his eventual tax burden. Yeah, I mean I I guess there's a part of me that kind of likes this as like a burn the boats sort of strategy, right? right? <laughs> like give yourself no other option but to go out there and win. And it did successfully get us talking about this prelim bout on a throwaway fight night event that otherwise most of us would not have given too much of a shit about. I mean, we would pay attention because Charles Rosa was in it and we like Charles Rosa. But for the most part, this was just another fight like buried way down there and people were not really talking about it. And then he comes out with this thing and now everybody's like, okay, well, that's interesting. I want to see how, how that shapes up and how that might affect some of the decisions you'd make in a fight, stuff like that. So he did... He did effectively promote a fight here. And yet, that's that's a tough one to take, man. Because you're, like, as pointed out here, he's already on a losing streak. And I mean, I think that was part of his desperation was him being like, I'll get cut from the UFC if I don't win this fight. I got to, you know, I really, this is a do or die for me. And so I'm like doubling down on that by betting on myself. But man... You're already in a tough financial situation, and then you lose this bet, and you come away with nothing, and you may lose your job. Like, eh, you, you, you already, you were in a, in a tough spot, and you made it tougher in a lot of ways. Yeah, see, I'm used to uh, suffering a bad beat here and there. You know, I, I'm, I'm used to waking up the next morning thinking about Andre Feely being way ahead in his fight against Daniel Pineda in the third bout I needed to to cement my three fight parlay over That's there at the, at the yeah. UFC. And then uh, he ends up uh, causing a, a no contest due to accidental eye poke. But I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not used to losing the bet and also getting kind of beat up and uh, having suffered a grueling three round decision loss to Charles Rosa. So that's a pretty bad beat for your man, uh, Justin James. Kind of my heart kind of goes out to him here. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Henpecked Hal, who writes, subject line, shots fired. And he writes, man, are these Triller bros poking the bear or what? His reference here to Jake Paul uh, making a donation to Sarah Alpar's GoFundMe that she started, which seemed to be uh, a GoFundMe basically just to sort of fund her life. like her, Yeah, her, just to train and live. Her training and, and the stuff that she needs to eventually... Uh, reach her goal of, of being a, a UFC champion. Uh, what's the sum here? Uh, I think Jake Paul donated like five thousand dollars. Five thousand right? dollars, yeah. And I think the Triller guys maybe like didn't they donate like twenty five thousand dollars or something? Yeah, and it's. Uh, I mean, this it is an interesting move for those guys, especially uh, since we don't we're not entirely sure what the Triller end game here is. They they. You know, obviously Jake Jake Paul has been making a lot of noise around fighter pay. Uh, the Triller guys themselves have kind of heaped heaped it on there, and we have discussed in the past that it kind of seems like they are most interested in just kind of burning Dana White and setting themselves across from the UFC, uh, essentially to get publicity out of it. Uh, I guess if you eventually wanted to make some manner of move into the MMA space and you wanted to to try to let fighters know that maybe the pay would be a little bit better on your side of the street. This would be one way to go about it, but it kind of seems like either they are legitimately humanitarians that they are out here doing this in a, in an altruistic way, or they're just kind of thumbing their noses at Dana White here. I, I would say it is the second one. Yeah. Uh, here's the quote though. 
we are honored to help Sarah as she continues her march toward becoming a world champion, said Peter Kahn, Triller's chief boxing officer. Sarah and many underpaid UFC fighters are starting at a disadvantage when they have to work multiple other jobs while putting their bodies and brains through the most rigorous training one could imagine. It's sad to see such talented fighters making less than the UFC ring slash round card girls. Yeah. See, there you go right there at the end. That's, there's, there's a little shot yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's a little bit of a savvy marketing move by them because Triller seems like... What it wants to do more than anything is jump up and down and say, look over here. And that's true with the kind of events that it's putting on. It's, you know, that's basically what the guy told me when I interviewed him uh, for my story where I talked about what's going on in this current weird moment in boxing where he was just like, hey, we want this to, we want to highlight entertainment value. And we want you to think of this as like a crazy thing where anything could happen and get your attention that way. And that's clearly, an approach that's carrying over to this kind of thing. And it, and it does kind of work. It's, it, you know, Dana White is sort of like easily baitable in some of these. He gets asked about it at the press conference and he goes off about Triller and what idiots they are and leave me alone, don't talk to me. And he knows they would love to get into a back and forth with the UFC because that only helps increase their awareness, like increase people's awareness of Triller and increase like that sort of brand awareness. He would like to resist that because he knows that, that that argument really does nothing for him if he's doing it out in public. But they're continuing to find these little ways to poke at him and keep that conversation going. And it's kind of smart from their perspective. Sarah Alpar, by the way, 30 years old, 9-5 and five overall. She won a fight on the Dana White Contender Series in August of 2019 to pave her way to the UFC second round submission over Shanna Young. She came in, lost her debut to Jessica Rose Clark uh, in September of 2020 via third round TKO. Um, So she's got a little bit of work to do to make that dream come true of being a UFC champion. But uh, I don't know, man, just seems like as almost everyone else has said, but I'll just add my voice to it, a sad commentary indeed that you've got these people fulfilling a lifelong dream to get to the UFC and then once they get there they're like oh hey by the way can I have some financial help from you the fans in order for me to be able to reach my full potential here since I'm not actually getting paid enough to do that from the world's largest mixed martial arts organization yeah well and I mean we talk about fighter pay and the sorry state of fighter pay often enough but one of the things that people also forget is not only do these people not get paid all that well for pro sports? They're also some of the only pro sports people who are responsible for paying their own coaches and paying the cost of their own training. And it is absolutely insane to think about somebody being like, oh, really happy to be signed to the Lakers. Uh, really excited to be starting my rookie year for the Lakers. I just need some financial help to be able to make it to practice and uh, have some food to eat when I get home to my studio apartment. And if everybody could kick in, that'd be great. Like we, you cannot even imagine such a scenario. And so it is, it does highlight a little bit of that insanity. Next question this week comes to us from Tunisian race walker Hatem Gula. Okay. Yeah. Everybody knows him who, or her. Who writes, yeah, Joe Lozon versus Cowboy Cerrone. This is one of those matchups that I can't believe didn't happen 10 years ago. Both are up there in UFC appearances, bonuses, and years spent alive. Joe Lauzen versus Cowboy <laughs> Cerrone. Make it a retirement fight where the loser retires and the winner winner also retires. Cowboy can go home to his ranch and Joe can do computer support throughout the Boston area with that wicked accent. Joe Lozon versus Cowboy Cerrone in the hopes that 
that repeating something three times will make it magically come to fruition. Seems like it would be a great fight and a great send off. Uh, so this clearly not a fight that's actually been signed, but just an idea. Okay. We, we've all been talking about what to do with Donald Cerrone here as he approaches the end of his career. And a fight against Joe Lazon, man, it's not the worst idea that I've ever heard. Cerrone, uh, obviously freshly on the heels of that loss to Alex Moreno, or Morono, sorry, uh, and, and hasn't hasn't gotten a uh, a full-on win since his fight with Ally Aquinta in May of 2019. Joe Lazon, you will recall, took that extended hiatus from the sport. Uh, the last time we had seen him was a TKO loss uh, to Chris Gutzmacher at UFC 223 back in April of 2018. But then he came back in October of 2019 and beat Jonathan Pierce via first-round uh, TKO. I don't hate this idea if you're trying to give uh, a couple of elder statesmen here an off-ramp from the sport. Uh, I don't know whether or not you would have to have it at lightweight because that's where Joe have fought most of his UFC career or if we could do a gentleman's agreement to not cut any weight here and come in at, at welterweight. Seems like a great idea to us, the fans, and people who uh, respect the fighters and love the sport. It just doesn't seem like what the UFC will want to do, my guess is, with either of these guys if they have more fights left in them. Yeah, I mean... I was briefly convinced here that this was a fight that was signed while I was on vacation. I just didn't hear about it because it does sound like a reasonable idea. And yeah, you wouldn't have to work very hard to convince me that they fought twice already. Right. You yeah. know, like it just seems like it. It just, it just seems like a thing that would happen over the years that they've both been in MMA. So like, I like the idea. My question would be like, if you think that's not the kind of fight that the UFC is looking to make, what, what are you looking to do with somebody like Donald Cerrone at this point? Because You've already done the thing of let's try to get his name value to rub off on younger fighters who have more of a future that we can work with and make money off of. And then we did the thing where we tried to match him up against another elder statesman like Diego Sanchez. Then, you know, that fell apart and they had to get Alex Morono to come in there at the last minute. But, like, I would think these kinds of fights, people could feel okay about watching them. You know, it's not Donald Cerrone going out there and getting beat up by some 25-year-old who's trying to make his name off of it because we've done that already. It's something where we go, hey, we're not going to try to kid you that this is to decide lightweight pecking order or future cont- title contenders or any of that. It's just a fun-ass fight, man. Like, it's just a fun-ass, violent fight that would be interesting and between a couple guys that you know and love. What's so bad about that? I like that idea. No, I think it's a great idea. Just a reminder, though, the UFC has sort of been trying to use Donald Cerrone as a springboard for other fighters since about 2018. Remember, in 2018, he fought Yancey Medeiros, Leon Edwards, and Mike Perry that year uh, and actually went 2-1. and one. Only loss there was to Leon Edwards, but you, you will uh, fondly recall those days back in 2008 when it seemed like the UFC was trying to use Donald Cerrone as sort of a springboard for Mike Perry. Uh, and it hasn't really, their, their booking strategy around the guy has, hasn't changed too much uh, since then. So, uh, you know, it would be nice to think that we were going to give some of these guys soft landings, but you just look around and it hasn't happened too much. Maybe this will be the yeah. time. Maybe this be, will be the time that cooler heads will prevail. Next question this week comes to us from Roy Orland, who writes, uh, while we all appreciate the PFL model rewarding finishes, didn't the UFC step away from awarding submission and knockout of the night because it was kind of legally murky for them to officially favor damage to an opponent? 
Uh, you and I have talked about that before. I don't know that the UFC clearly ever came out and said that was the reason that they changed the name of the knockout and submission of the night bonuses. I think that you've got a, a an interesting point here, but it seems a little bit less uh, legally murky, if that's what you want to say about it, in the PFL, just because, I mean, they are kind of treating MMA as a... a as a sport that you can you can quantify with playoffs and standings and points for victories and stuff like that, and it, punch speed it, to me to me it uh, provides a you know sometimes a little interesting wrinkle for the sport that you're going to get more points depending on how and when you win, and it doesn't seem quite as bloodthirsty and cl- and cutthroat than just like having a knockout of the night bonus where you're like whoever delivers the most jaw-dropping trauma to his opponent's brain on this night will receive an extra $50,000. Just doesn't doesn't seem like an apples-to-apples comparison to me, although I do see kind of what Roy Orland is getting to here. Yeah, well, I don't think... I think there's a big difference between setting something up as there's a finish bonus or there is like an extra incentive or something you get for finishing the fight rather than letting it go to the decision and then saying knockout, saying explicitly... There's a, the, a separate thing for knockouts. We want to see those knockouts go out there and separate people from their consciousness. Because that is something where if you get yourself into a concussion lawsuit years down the road and people are one of the first exhibits they're going to have is for years they offered a knockout bonus. Like not just, you know, make the fight end early or because you could argue like, hey, you're going out there, you're getting people in a choke, an arm bar, finishing the fight that way. It's you're minimizing the damage like the fight ends quicker. There's less human carnage all around. And that method of victory does not typically do a whole lot of damage. It definitely doesn't typically do a lot of brain damage. But it, it is a different thing when you were saying explicitly knockout, because the way it used to work was. It, there could be like seven good submissions on a fight card and they're still only going to give out one submission bonus typically. And a lot of times it'd be like there might only be one knockout and that one was automatically getting the knockout bonus. And now having it as there's a fight of the night and then there are two performance bonuses, we can kind of use those performance bonuses as like best knockout and best submission, but without actually saying it if we want to. And I would think that that probably puts you on a firmer legal ground. Yeah, last question this week comes to us from Dan Algieri. This will get us, I believe, transitioning here into our talk about the UFC heavyweight division. He writes, two main events for Cyril Gom this year and twice I've fallen asleep watching. Should the blame for this rest on me and my New Zealand time zone, his opponents, or Gom himself? Please discuss. Uh, so again, another question that came in back during this fight night when Cyril Gaon defeated Alexander Volkov by unanimous decision in the main event of this thing before we even knew, well, we didn't know, Cyril Gaon has come out later and said he kind of knew that uh, that he would be put into this interim heavyweight title fight against Derek Lewis. Cyril Gaon is one of these guys, Ben, who seems to have all of the potential in the world. He's got every tool. He's 31 years old at this point, comes in from a, a Muay Thai kickboxing background. Uh, he you know, he's he's from France, fights out of Paris, the MMA factory, the same place where uh, Francis Ngannou got his start. His, his trainer is Fernand Lopez. He hasn't been in the sport a terribly long time. 
uh, only made his UFC debut in August of 2019. He's 9-0 and overall now with his victory over Alexander Volkov. And I guess in these last two against Jarzino Rosenstrike and now against Volkov, he has put on these performances where it seems like he's maturing a little bit into his skill set. He is starting to look a little bit more like a a more dangerous heavyweight, a better rounded heavyweight, a guy who might go out there and throw them hands with the elite of the division. But I do also kind of agree he's one of these guys that when you watch him, fair or not, from outside the cage, you do have a tendency to think, man, this guy's so talented. He's so athletic. He's so good. Let's just fucking crank it up to 11 here and like, and let's all go home early when Cyril Gon seems to take a little bit more of a, uh, uh, you know, a patient approach. And so uh, I do wonder how that will fare as he moves up the ranks here. He doesn't at this point have too much further to go, I guess, since we're going to try do everything we can to put an interim strap on the dude in his next fight. But uh, I don't know. What do, do you think there's anything to this, that in this division, the heavyweight division where a lot of people pay to see the knockouts, uh, does Cyril gone need to show a little bit more aggressiveness or a little bit more killer instinct here in order, order to truly get over as a, as a capital G guy in this heavyweight division? Listen, what, what we're not going to do is we're not going to sit around here and call Cyril Gaon a boring fighter. That guy has an action style, a stand-up striking game, and he's just, especially for a heavyweight, he is a good athletic striker at heavyweight, the likes of which we do not see terribly often. He's also still pretty young in his MMA career, and he's up there against guys like Alexander Volkov, who has a ton of fucking fights and is a big, dangerous dude, and he beat the brakes off that guy, man. Like, he doesn't have that one-touch, like, you know, death-touch punch that somebody like Francis Ngannou or even somebody like Jerzy Nero Rosenstrike does, but he is a good, like, technically sound and savvy striker, and... There were moments in that Volkov fight where you could see him cranking it up and you could see him like increasing the output and really bringing it to Volkov, but it, he just doesn't have that one strike power that puts people to sleep. And that's fine. And I, like, I, I thought Dana White was too critical of him when he won that fight over Rosenstrike. I mean, I get it in a way where it looks like this guy is so much better and so invulnerable to the attacks of the other guy that we go. Why are you even still letting him stand there crossing you? Well, because the other guy is a big, dangerous dude himself. And if you fuck up against that guy, he can make you pay for it. So I don't blame him for not just being reckless and going out there and prioritizing the finish. And for a guy who just keeps winning these fights and says he's undefeated, and we're going to criticize him just because we feel like, oh, you, you didn't get, you didn't do enough style points there for me. Like, no, no, we are not doing that. I'm saying it right now. I'm putting my foot down. Stop it. Everybody just stop it. Leave Cyril gone alone. He's good. He's a good fighter, damn it. We don't have too many good fighters at heavyweight. What are you trying to do? We're trying to we, we can't just this is why we can't have nice things, Jed. This shit right here. He does have six finishes in nine fights. So that's pretty good. And you know, we've seen this happen to other guys, right? That like you've got these guys who are fairly prodigious finishers as they're working their way up the ranks, and then when you get to uh to the actual elite of the division when you're fighting at the championship level. Oh, by the way, the people you're fighting are also super good and tough and durable. And so we've seen other fighters have these these runs of stoppages either in smaller promotions or in their early days of their UFC career. And then when they get to the top, there's a tendency to have a lot more more decisions. And I think it's because not only, as I said, are you fighting tougher people, better competition, 
people that are harder to put away, also there's more at stake. So maybe you do have a tendency in some of these uh, bigger ticket fights to come out and like, you know, especially if you think, if you have reason to believe as Cyril Gon does against almost everybody, that you are a better, more skilled striker than they are. Maybe the way to do it is to, to you know, fight like he does and, and just put on a better, more technical performance. And if that gets you the finish, fine. And if it goes to decision, that's also good because what you're trying to do is get the win, especially in this fight against Volkov where Gon has come out after the fact and said the UFC told me before this fight, if I win this, I'm probably getting an interim heavyweight title fight. So uh, I, I don't really hate on the guy at all. I just wonder, like, you know, in a division where we are used to seeing Francis Ngannou now, we've seen guys like Alistair Overeem, who was during the prime of his career, at least a big knockout artist. When, you, when the big guys get out there, you want to see the two real big bulls out there throwing them bungalows, and you want to see knockouts and finishes. And I wonder if some people will see that as a uh, an Achilles heel of Cyril Gaon if he continues to climb these ranks. I mean, it's not like he's being inactive. It's not like he's just standing there staring at the guy. In the Volkov fight, he seized the initiative in that fight pretty much the entire time. Like, he was the one going forward, had Volkov's back up against the fence for most of the fight, and standing there punching the guy in the face. And you look at Volkov's face at the end of that fight, he got beat up, man. Like, I don't know. And that's a guy with, like, 50 goddamn fights or something to, on his pro record. I don't know how you come away from that and you'd be like, oh, he didn't do enough. Like, no, he, he's good. I mean, I still think there are questions about some of the other areas of his game. We just haven't seen him tested by a good wrestler or anything like that. I also think you might be in trouble if your whole thing is being like a, a slick technical striker and you have to go up against somebody like Francis Ngannou, where if you can't put that guy away and you have to stand there across from him for five rounds uh, and let him be on his feet throwing them bungalows the entire time, then you, yeah, you might be in trouble there. But at this point, like the thing I'm not willing to criticize him for is that like his fights aren't fun enough. Yeah, and in some in some regards, the Derek Lewis fight may be instructive. We may get to yeah. see how Cyril Gaon fares against someone with the knockout power who's probably going to be pretty aggressive. Uh, you spoke to this at the beginning of the show, but I did want to specifically ask you, you knew you fucked up when you went on vacation. The MMA gods were not going to let you just take a week off where nothing happens. Like, that's just not going to fly. Where were you? What were you doing? How did you find out that the UFC had booked this interim title fight between Cyril Gaon and Derek Lewis? And what was your initial reaction when you found out? I was at the World Museum of Mining oh, in Butte. That's a, that's a dope place. I like that place. With, with my children. Very weird. It is so weird. For the people who don't know it, you know, Butte, obviously, a long mining history here in Montana. But at the World Museum of Mining, they have, like, it's an all-outdoor kind of, or almost all-outdoor museum. And in the back, they have made, like, a replica of, like, old Butte, kind of. with And there's even, like, there's a schoolhouse with, like, a mannequin in there as a teacher. And that's just really creepy. Yeah. For some reason, they have one room of dolls. Nothing but dolls. And some of them are really old and creepy, and you're like, okay, I can see like maybe there's a historical value, and like, hey, look at this doll from like 1911 or whatever. But then you look up at another point, and there's like, mm, and also the Harry Potter dolls, and like there's Mr. T. I had to explain to my children, try to try to explain to two children the cultural phenomenon of Mr. T. And, and uh, you know, I was doing the pity the fool voice and all that kind of stuff, and then my phone starts blowing up. I'm getting, you know, Twitter DMs and people are going like, you know, basically 
the tenor of most of the comments, especially like people know me, know what my reaction to something like this is going to be. And there was a lot of LOL, bro, you believe this shit? And I went, wait, hold on. What's going on? Had to like fire up Twitter, look at it and then be like, God damn it. I was just getting into like a relax mode here. I was just just trying to slide into that vacation mindset. Enjoy look, look over here looking at some samples of weird minerals taken out of the earth. And you hit me with this shit? Unbelievable. World Museum of Mining is the kind of place you could easily imagine a horror movie take, oh, yeah. taking place. Uh, but it is worth a stop if you're ever over in Butte. I'm going to squeeze this question in from our guy, the Great Dane, because I believe it gives voice to how a lot of people are feeling around the announcement that we're going to do this interim title fight. Uh, the Great Dane writes, what the holy fuck is the UFC doing with the heavyweight title? Christ, it's like they don't want me to be a fan. Now, whether depending on what happens with this interim title, this could either be a very big deal or it might turn out to be not a big deal at all. But this is exactly the kind of thing myself included that is going to make us in the MMA bubble just absolutely fucking irate because Francis Ngannou a well-liked fun fighter that has a great personal story that we all want to see good stuff happen for just won the goddamn title almost three months to the day before they announced this interim title fight three months Ben and the UFC is out here trying to just act like they need an interim UFC heavyweight title fight at UFC 265 in August? Give me a fucking break, man. Like, how many times have, have we waited out a lengthy delay in the heavyweight division? Yeah, regardless, especially in heavyweight. Regardless yeah. of the cause, how many times have we waited this out? And now you've got this guy who I think, and obviously a lot of people agree with me, is your best chance to have a bona fide UFC heavyweight pay-per-view star since you had Brock Lesnar ensconced as the heavyweight champion. And this is what you're going to do? Like, regardless mm-hmm. of if, if, if this is, turns out to be a glorified number one contender fight and Francis Ngannou gets to fight the winner later, regardless, why would you do this, man? It just kind of... It undermines Francis Ngannou, a guy that you could make a big star out of. And, you know, maybe on top of everything else, it just seems like it makes him mad. Like, I don't know why. I don't know why you would do that. And like when I try to sift through my mind, why would the UFC do this? Number one, they already had a title fight booked at UFC 265. Amanda Nunes is supposed to fight Juliana Pena. So maybe you feel like you need another one, but you've already got one. Number two. Francis Ngannou's manager, at least, said they already uh, confirmed that or accepted that they would fight in September. So it's not like it seems it doesn't seem like you're in a big protracted like contract negotiation with Francis Ngannou unless the financials of that hadn't been figured out. I don't understand why you do this, man. Like it doesn't it doesn't seem to accomplish anything besides making a guy who could be a big star for your organization feel like maybe I'm not in the right place. Well, I was interested. I saw Ariel Helwani's tweets on it uh, at some point when I was checking in during vacation. And he pointed out that the UFC has signed a, an agreement with the Toyota Center in Houston, I believe, where there was you know, a certain number of events. And they wanted, and this is one of them, and there was, a, there was pressure to have Derek Lewis on that card as like a local draw. And... 
it made me think of exactly what we were talking about before after that uh, Morgan Stanley investor analysis. One of the things that they highlighted as a potential like growing revenue source for the USC and thus Endeavor was site fees. That basically the USC could be making more money by signing these deals with cities or arenas to get paid just to bring the show there. And this seems like you can you could see the influence of something like that and it's not necessarily good in this instance because it's like okay hey this is an opportunity another way that the ufc can make more money that flows directly to the ufc and that the fighters do not get a piece of and all they have to do in order to make it work is just sort of manipulate the sport in a way that undermines it and that also like as you said pisses off one of your best fighters and one of your best potential assets. Like, not only is Francis Ngannou, like, does he have the potential to be a big star because, you know, he's charismatic. His fighting style is just utterly terrifying. And, but also, like, he has the potential to be a global star for you because he is not just of interest to, like, an American audience. You know, maybe somebody like Brock Lesnar was a little bit more like that. Francis Ngannou is like, you know, a, a African refugee who has this rags to riches story that you could really use and do some big things with. And instead, you, you decide like, you know what? No, we won't wait a month to make uh, like an actual fight that might make sense for that guy. We won't negotiate with one of our other big stars to put together a huge blockbuster pay-per-view that would be like a cultural event. No, instead, like, we want to make that money from the Toyota Center or whoever. And so let's just pull a belt out of the supply closet and and put on that fight. And the thing is, like, who has ever bought a fight that they weren't going to buy or watched a fight that they weren't otherwise going to watch just because there was an interim title? Like, it doesn't actually accomplish anything. Right. It, that's, that's the most galling part of it. Right. And all the stuff that you say about uh, Houston and the site fees and wanting to get Derek Lewis on that card makes perfect sense and totally seems like something that the UFC would do and seems like something that would make them more money. And that is a perfectly reasonable reason to try to get a fight like this to go off. But why on earth would you try to have to have it be an interim title fight, man? Like there's nothing wrong with Cyril gone fighting Derek Lewis. It's a good fight. It's a borderline great heavyweight fight. And like I said, a few minutes ago, it's going to tell us some stuff about Cyril gone when Derek Lewis gets out there and does his Derek Lewis stuff against Cyril gone. It's going to give us a a decent idea how he Cyril gone is going to fare against this kind of fighter. Make it a goddamn number one contender fight, man. You don't have to put the heavyweight title on the line because I'll tell you one thing, man, you could give these guys a trophy, give them a <laughs> crown, give them a cape, give them a belt, give them a medal, whatever you got. Ain't no Giant one check. ain't no one on God's green earth going to believe that there is a heavyweight champion in the UFC not named Francis Ngannou at this moment. So it just like doesn't do any good, man. I don't even understand why you're doing it. Just have it be a number one contender fight. And at the end of the day, it honestly feels like the UFC just sort of trying to send a message to Francis Ngannou that like, look, man, we don't care who you are. We don't care how big you are. We don't care if you're the heavyweight champion. We don't care if you do have this potential. You are not more important than our schedule. And you are not more important than the three letters, man. And that's all we need. And like, if that's what's happening, that's just a goddamn shame, man, because... Well, the, and that has to be... I mean, I'm not saying that's an, the entirety of the explanation of what's happening, but that is definitely a part of it, is the UFC showing him, like, no, we don't have to wait for you. We don't have to dance to your tune. You dance to ours. And to show you that it doesn't matter if you are the heavyweight champion of the world, 
we can still move on without you. We can still leave you behind in this. The same way that we're trying to send that message to John Jones when we were even talking about doing Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis when that fight was sitting out there. It's like, hey, we don't have to negotiate with you because we don't need you. Like, we don't need any one person, any one fighter. We're The brand is bigger than that. And that is what it seems like that this is an attempt to remind them of. Yeah. I've seen it posited online that this could turn out to be a better deal for Francis Ngannou, especially if Cyril Gaon wins. Because clearly you've got these two guys who are both from France. Cyril Gaon has Fernand Lopez, as I mentioned, as his trainer, who is the guy who got Francis Ngannou into MMA. Uh, I don't know what the training situation would be like for that, because even though Ngannou does most of his preparations now uh, at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas with Eric Nixick, I think he maintains a pretty good relationship with Fernand Lopez. So I don't know if you would have this sort of like mentor training this other guy to fight Francis Ngannou, which, you know, as far as fight sports uh, tropes go, as far as pre-fight plot lines go, that one would be pretty good if that's where Mm -hmm. we got. Uh, if these guys could end up fighting in France, which is kind of testing out MMA legalization as we speak, and it would be a unification fight instead of just a regular uh, heavyweight title defense, I've seen it posited, hey, man, all that could work out better for Francis Ngannou if the, if all of that stuff comes to fruition, because he could potentially get a bigger payday, like a bitter, a bigger, a higher profile fight in Europe. Maybe it's good for him in that market. Do you buy that at this point, that this could be, there could be a silver lining out here for Big Fran if, if things go the way they could go? Maybe, but I, I mean, I definitely don't think that was the UFC's intent. Like, it, it could just kind of work out that way. Because I think, like... You're right that if if Cyril Gaon wins that fight, that does become an interesting talking point is, you know, two guys, uh, enough of a shared history there in the past and that they seem like on a collision course and people would be into that. I, I would, if I was John Jones, I'd still be looking for ways to remind people, hey, uh, I am actually like the greatest light heavyweight fighter that's ever existed. And I'm doing the thing that you guys always said that you wanted people to do is go up in heavyweight and like go up and wait and challenge a, a like utterly terrifying champion at that weight. Not like only going up and wait when I think that there's an easy mark holding the belt, like going up and waiting, taking on the scariest guy. Like I'm, I'm doing that. I'm trying to do that thing that you guys have always said you wanted. So like, can we just stay focused on that for a while? Like I, that's what I would be thinking if I were John Jones. But I mean, I think Francis Ngannou has some good options going forward. Like he didn't need to freak out or anything. I, I don't think anybody is going to get less interested in seeing big Fran do the big Fran thing. Yeah. Like he still has an enormous appeal and especially the version of, of him that we saw against Stipe, I think made everybody kind of go, Oh, holy shit. If Francis Ngannou is still getting better and adding new tools to his game like this, especially with Eric Nixick and, and the extreme couture people, this, he could be scary. He could be a problem for for some time to come. So, like, people are still going to want to see Francis and God. And you're right that nobody is going to come out of any of this stuff going like, okay, maybe the winner of Cyril Gaon versus Derek Lewis is the world's best heavyweight. No, nobody is even thinking that. It's Francis and God right now until somebody goes in there and beats him. I had some conspiracy theorists come on my timeline. I don't know if I should call them conspiracy theorists or if I should call them people that just have a lot more faith in humanity and the world than I do at this point. Because some people came on the timeline and said, this has got to be a setup for Jones and Gano in the fall, 
right? Like that's why we're doing this. That's why we're put. We're going to put this interim title on Cyril Gone so that we can later announce John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. There won't be a big interruption in the in the heavyweight landscape. But there wouldn't be a big interruption anyway. Depending on when John Jones can be ready. Okay. Well, I mean, but didn't he? He kind of suggested that maybe next year this time, like maybe next spring is when he would be ready. But even then, I mean, if you have an interim champ walking around and then you have the actual champ walking around and the actual champ is going to fight somebody else other than the interim, how do you continue the justification to have the continued existence of the interim belt? Like we've talked before that one of the values of an interim belt is that it, like if it means anything at all, it can just be like a physical token to be exchanged for an actual title fight later on. Yeah. Like as long as you have that, although it's been taken from people, like that's Tony Ferguson, how quickly that, that interim belt just becomes, you know, a paperweight when the UFC decides that it no longer suits their needs. But if you're going to have that interim belt and then the champion's going to do something else anyway, uh, then it, it, it makes no sense at all. And don't tell me that it's like, oh, this is so that we can give ourselves five rounds of this because we're already doing five round co-main, like non-main events. Like we, we've already kind of broken that ground. Plus, I think a lot of people would hope that if we're watching Cyril Gaon and Derek Lewis, we won't need five rounds. Like uh, there's there's no real sound justification for it. Someone floated this idea on the live chat on Wednesday, but is it time for Francis Ngannou to tweet at John Jones and challenge him to a charity sparring match? Okay. Somewhere in a gym in France. Just say, well, you know, we'll give the money to your favorite charity. Come on over and let's 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 do it. Nothing to do with the UFC. Let's just like like however Conor McGregor phrased it and and I'll rank it to Dustin Poirier. Just you know, let's just have ourselves some fun, and uh, no one can stop us from putting up a live stream in the gym. Yeah. As good a segue as any to UFC 264, where Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier are going to do it for a third time. The UFC trekking across town to T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas. Almost certainly going to be one of the biggest events of the year, because regardless of what uh, many of us inside the bubble might think about Conor McGregor's ongoing uh, UFC career, whether or not we've seen the best of it, et cetera, et cetera. He still seems to command a tremendous amount of interest from the outside, from the from the casual fans, from the mainstream. Clearly, he's coming off this loss to Dustin Poirier. We are going to do it for a third time now. Uh, I feel like Dustin Poirier should win this. Like, on paper, just depending on or considering what we saw last time, and where these guys are at in their respective career arcs right now, Dustin Poirier should win this, Ben. But I have a very bad feeling deep down in my gut. And I think the reason that I have it is we didn't really need to do this, man. Like, you can't tell me if, if the first two fights had gone exactly the opposite way. If Dustin Poirier had defeated Conor McGregor real early in their UFC runs, and then McGregor had had this, like, great maturation process and had come back and beat Dustin Poirier in the rematch, you can't tell me we'd be doing a third one right now. No. We wouldn't. We're doing this because everyone needs to make the money and because Conor McGregor wants to get that win back. And I'm superstitious enough at this point that I feel like when, when you start doing stuff in this sport that you don't need to do bad stuff happens. So I got a little, I'm a little trepidatious. I got to be honest about this UFC 264 main event. 
Dustin Poirier should win. I kind of feel like we are about to get sucked into a Conor McGregor lightweight whirlpool. Okay. Where we're all just a... we're all just circling the, the title shot, but it could be years before it comes to fruition. Talk me off the ledge. Well, I don't know if I can. And I also think that I, I think this is a tough fight to call uh, for a lot of reasons. And I know I was just writing a thing today, actually, because everybody enjoyed making fun of Conor McGregor after this loss in the rematch for being like, oh, wow, I'd never experienced those calf kicks. You didn't know what that was all about. And everybody being like, Bro, do you not watch this sport? I mean, like, it's pretty silly, everybody, man. It's pretty silly for a guy it. who's a professional at the level of Conor McGregor. It'd be like if uh, an NFL quarterback was like, oh, man, zone blitz, huh? Weird. Uh, never heard of it. I guess I got to figure what that figure out what that is. Sorry I fumbled on the last play of the Super Bowl, but we'll be back, and I'll know about the zone blitz, so everything will be fine. Well, but I, I there might be something to – that Conor McGregor, the kind of life he's been living as a superstar who occasionally fights. Like, if you're Dustin Poirier, you're going to know about calf kicks pretty early on into them becoming a increasingly popular thing in MMA. Because if you're showing up for sparring day at ATT, people are going to be doing it to you. Yeah. Like you, he, he is in that world, he is living that life, and he is not doing anything else really. Besides, you know, maybe selling some hot sauce on the side but he does not have to work to keep up with mma's advances and evolutions because he's right there in it and he has always been in it and he's never left it and conor mcgregor on the other hand has a lot of other stuff going on in his life and then you know water safety awareness things things of that nature that are very important to him he's off doing this other stuff and basically will convene a training camp for his purposes and re- revolving entirely around him when he has a fight scheduled. And then it's going to be a whole bunch of people who they know that that is their function. It's not you joining a team, like a, a functioning team already in progress. It's you getting everybody together for a Conor McGregor training camp and they all know who the boss is and, and you know who we're all essentially working for. It's a lot easier to miss out on some stuff and to fall behind, I think, when that is your life. Yeah. And... I, I do think, though, it's hard not to see some similarities between his two fights with Nate Diaz and the situation he's in right now with Dustin Poirier. Because that was a similar one where it's like after that fight with Jose Aldo, he was going to go up to lightweight, challenge Javier Dos Anjos for the lightweight belt. Dos Anjos gets hurt, has to pull out to get Nate Diaz there at the last minute. But Conor McGregor was just a like a meteor at that point who had become very, very quickly very, very famous. And he loses that fight against Nate Diaz. And then demands the rematch. And it's almost the same time frame, too. It's like, you know, later that year, like, a, like five, six months later, gets the rematch against Nate Diaz. And honestly, in that second fight with Nate Diaz, showed some real growth, like, as a fighter from that first fight where he was a little bit more composed, didn't freak out, even in tough spots. Did him, like, showed that he had improved because he had to. Like, he'd been put under that, that pressure and had to get better. And so he did. And, like, to his credit. And then here he is in this one with Dustin Poirier where he goes out there and he was just trying to do the regular McGregor stuff, right? Like, land that big left hand wait for the guy to go down. And he landed it a couple times. Poirier, you know, he felt it, didn't go down, and he chipped away at that leg just long enough to compromise him, his mobility, and then beat him in the second round. And so now Conor McGregor does the same thing and says, I want that one back. And maybe, maybe getting your ass kicked on live TV is just enough of a motivator 
to get you to be like, okay, we got to get serious about this and pick up some of the stuff that maybe I missed when I was crusading for water safety awareness and buying bars just so I could 86 the old man I punched. Like, maybe it's time to, like, get back to being that hardcore obsessive dude about this shit. And I think that that, that's why you find him at a real, like, crossroads and, like, a test to see, can you still do that? you've, You've drifted in and out. Now you want all the way back in. Can you still get all the way back in, though? Yeah, and I think it's a real big question of whether or not he can at this stage, not necessarily in his life because he's only 32 years old, but like in this in this stage of his life as a fighter, where as you said, he's got tons of stuff going on. He has already seen the highest highs and he has already kind of been through all this stuff. I think this is probably going to test his dedication more than anything else. Uh, and I agree with you that he could come out and he could be more dangerous in this fight against Dustin Poirier, that he might be able to harness that hunger that he might be able to, you know, take the steps that he needs to take to, to shore those holes in his game. And we might have a a real competitive fight on our hands. And I think everything you just said is true. And the thing that I come back to again, again, is as a hardcore MMA fan, what am I supposed to do with that information about Conor McGregor? Because I agree that it's true, but it also makes me feel like I have this pit in my stomach where it's like, okay, Conor McGregor can come back and he can be supremely dedicated and hundred percent motivated around this Dustin Poirier fight. But for how long? Because he could surely beat Dustin Poirier, but then doesn't that get us into a situation where now we got to worry about the uh, uh, Charles Oliveira fight and like, is McGregor going to be motivated for that one? And then what if he wins that? Then is he going to go fight Michael Chandler? Is he going to be motivated for that one? Like, would is there any hope that Conor McGregor would uh, become part of a functioning lightweight division f- that we as actual fans of the sport would want to see? Or does he come in for one night and he's hot under the collar? And his legs are made out of stone now because he's done everything that he needed to do. He can check the kick. Maybe he gets lucky and beats Dustin Poirier. And then what, man? And then what? Like, that's kind of oh, no, how I, mean, I feel. I mean, you're, you're, I can't talk you off of that ledge because he beats Dustin Poirier. He's stomping on phones in Monaco within six months. Like, you know how that goes. Yeah. He's going back on yes. vacation afterwards, and uh, he will have been like back to being the not quite obsessed and focused to. But that's kind of been his MO his entire career, right? Is like achieving these big heights, but then the same way, like he never defended a belt. Like one, two belts never defended either one of them. And like that, that's just, I think, going to be part of it. I don't think there is a scenario where Conor McGregor is a, a cog in a lightweight picture that goes on the way we're used to those things going on like he Conor McGregor is not going to fight two or three times a year anymore uh like especially you know working his way up the ranks getting getting lightweight title fights defending those belts like that that kind of stuff that we expect of people in a normal division and everything that's not going to be Conor McGregor because he's just he's kind of eclipsed that that aspect of the fighter's life um but I, I do think there's, to me, is an interesting question because it is a difficult thing to do at, at, at his age and at, with some of the stuff he's been through, like to try to go back and have that sort of like, you know, Rocky three moment of like, let me go, let me get back in this grimy gym and really work my ass off and like recapture this fire, recapture this spirit so that I can get my revenge on this guy. And 
I don't, it's it's a, a lot harder than people realize it is, but also like he is a good fighter when he is focused and, and puts all that stuff together. Like he, the stuff that he does, he does pretty well. It also though makes you wonder like how much evolution are you capable of at this point? Because like the same way we saw with somebody like Fedor, where it's like, man, you, you see Fedor even now, he goes out there, he's still doing the Fedor stuff. But the game is not the way it was in 2005 anymore. Yeah. And so it doesn't work that well. And it's always like an interesting test to see, like, can you grow and evolve along with this sport, which is always ready to leave you behind right. if you're not absolutely committed to it. And you know who hasn't allowed that to happen is Dustin Poirier. Yeah. <laughs> Quite the opposite thing has happened with Dustin Poirier, who has had a... a everything you could possibly ask for in terms of, like, the evolution of a fighter from a guy who has been in this game for a long time, has never left it. Uh, it seems like a wonderful human from everything we know about him, or at least has matured into a wonderful human after a childhood where I think he would tell you he made some mistakes. Uh, but has also become a really, 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 really fucking good lightweight fighter. Like, way better than I think any of us ever thought Dustin Poirier would be. And you can't chalk that up to anything besides his talent, his hard work, surrounding himself with the best people that he could find, and just being at it all the time. We we joke yeah. on the show about Embrace the Grind, but Dustin Poirier has done that, especially during the latter part of his MMA career, and he has had more success and done better than I think a lot of people uh, expected him to. If Conor McGregor can beat Dustin Poirier, this version of Dustin Poirier, and I guess we are making some assumptions here that Dustin Poirier will show up prepared, as he always does, that he will show up healthy, and that he will be game and, and good to go. If Conor McGregor can beat that guy in a dogfight, that will be impressive to me and i but i just don't know man i kind of like i don't know if connor can do it at this stage in his career i don't it's as you said very hard i think to get back in the in the gym and make the sacrifices that you made on the way up the ladder once you're already at the top of it and like i just have no confidence that he would be able to do that in a kind of prolonged way even if he like lands an early left hand in this fight and wins by knockout so that's where i am at on this fight let me ask you this question do you think this is conor mcgregor's last chance to kind of be regarded as an elite championship contending fighter in the ufc maybe at lightweight like i've seen other people have been saying this online maybe this is his last chance to me i think like he goes up to 170 he beats you know, Stephen Thompson or something. And we'd just as soon be talking about him fighting Kamaru Usman. But like, do you, do you buy that? Like if McGregor loses to Poirier and loses in a fashion resembling their second fight that like that will kind of wash our hands of him as like a, a top level elite championship guy. I mean, I will never underestimate the UFC's willingness to just put Conor McGregor in a title fight at any point, whether it makes sense or not, that, that, you know, that just makes money. And I don't think that it will even necessarily have to be a question of whether or not he's earned it. I do think, though, that I and I was working on something along these lines for this week as well, because it feels like for a while now we've been having this conversation of like, how many hits can the Conor McGregor brand take and still remain this superstar? Especially yeah. because, as we've mentioned before, if you kind of learned about Conor McGregor as, you know, maybe from the Nate Diaz fights or maybe later on when from the Floyd Mayweather stuff. Like, 
he becomes this big time cultural phenomenon. You watch him fight Floyd Mayweather, he loses. Then he has this fight with uh, Khabib later on that becomes a huge like selling pay per view. He loses that. Uh, you hear about him again. He's going to fight. Uh, you know, he comes back, fights kind of a washed up version of Cowboy Cerrone, and then wins that. Fights uh, this rematch against Dustin Poirier and loses that. I can understand how people who just sort of got clued in when it became uh, enough of a mainstream sports appeal to be like, wait, why is this guy famous? He doesn't seem to be that good. Right. Like, he, he seems like he loses as much as he wins. Like, And so you do wonder, how many fights can you lose and still be that superstar famous dude? Like, at some point, will people be like, mm, this is like a bad parody of itself. The guy keep continuing to talk about being the greatest and he keeps losing these fights. Or will they just sort of lose interest and drift away and be like, I remember when Conor McGregor was good. I don't know. I'm surprised at how resilient it's been thus far, to tell you the truth. So I I, I don't know if there's a even a point out there at which he loses enough fights and people go, uh, we're over it. Yeah. I will say that the general public seems to maintain interest around a fighter or around a personality far longer than I do. It always surprises me how long these guys can prolong their, uh, their life as a commodity and kind of still get people to buy the pay-per-views and still be uh, significant pay-per-view draws. Even after I feel like we've, we in the bubble have kind of got them figured out, but even as hardcore MMA fans right now, I don't even know if we know what Conor McGregor has because he's only fought four times since 2016. You know, he, he, uh, after the win over Nate Diaz, as you said, he only has four fights in the UFC and he's two and two. His wins are over Eddie Alvarez and Donald Cerrone and he lost to Habib and he lost to Dustin Poirier. So like he's been so inactive and has looked so hit and miss over the course of the last five years, which is a long damn time in, uh, in an athlete's life. And so even though he's still in his early thirties, I still look at the guy and I, I honestly like I couldn't tell you what he has left. I don't know what he's capable of headed into this Dustin Poirier fight. If it turns out, as I said, that he is still able to put on a vintage Conor McGregor performance against a guy as talented, as motivated, and as prepared as Dustin Poirier, I'll be really impressed. But I also yeah. feel like he's going to waste a lot of our goddamn time. Well, I also think let's not bury the lead that then folks will be in attendance yeah i was just gonna then say folks you're, will be in you're gonna the be damn there. building how, how long since you've been to a fight what was the last fight you were at i think the last ufc event i was at was the one in australia where israel Adesanya beat rob whitaker and that was october of 2019 i think uh, i'm pretty sure that was the last one i've been to and you know this will be I'm looking forward to this kind of just as an experience. Not only is it a Conor McGregor fight week and those are always big time, but like this will be the first one back in Vegas at the T-Mobile Arena with a full crowd again uh, back in the UFC's home stomping grounds. And I'm curious to see what is, what's the scene in Vegas? Is it just another summer in Las Vegas where we're all going to pool parties and breathing each other's air? Are we feeling good about that again? I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. It, it, uh, it was especially interesting. I got the email from the UFC where they were like, here's our like COVID protocol. You know, you got to sign the COVID waiver, all that stuff. And being like unvaccinated media members are going to have to still wear the mask, take the COVID test, go through all that stuff. If you can prove you've been vaccinated, you get to skip all that. And I was like, well, I can't show you my card fast enough. But then also it kind of reminds me, I was like, what do I, just do I take a picture of the card and send it to you? Because... 
That's all I got. I got that and I got a sticker that says I've been vaccinated. And that's kind of it. Makes me feel like it was a little, little bit of like a flimsy authorization process to prove it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best there. You're going to be like the guy wandering around Vegas for the first time in 20 years. You're going to mm-hmm. be like the city center is going to blow your mind. Your favorite bartender is not going to be there anymore. You're going to wonder why that Prince uh, tribute band is not playing uh, down the street from the circus circus anymore. You're going to be like, where's the $1 margaritas at? I can't wait. This is going to be great. I wish you could I, film the whole thing. I already had the experience of like trying to book the hotel that I usually like. That was right by the T-Mobile arena. And it's just not, it's gone or like, it's just been like rebranded as something else. And I was like, man, this city's changing too fast for me. Yeah. See, I can't keep up. I'm excited for this. I'm excited. So we're going to have the uh, live chat as scheduled on Wednesday over on the Patreon page, because you'll still be around. Uh, Are we going to try to do a remote power hour on Friday? You know, Fernando lives in Mexico city. And so she was able to do it. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm packing this here, Mike. In the luggage, in the carry-on, taking it to Las Vegas with me, and uh, you can you can talk to me from there. Yeah, if you are not poolside with an umbrella drink and your glasses askew, I'm gonna be disappointed, man. I'm gonna be kind of disappointed. You're gonna be like, "Hey, this is Margaret. I just met her. She's the love <laughs> of my life." <laughs> I can't wait. Is that your, your Barney Gumble voice? That's, That's just my bad. drunk Ben Folks voice. Is what that okay. is. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event uh, podcast this week. Again, remember, check us out. Patreon.com slash co-main event. We are there all week. The Wednesday live chat, the Friday power hour. We have a Thursday movie club scheduled. We're supposed to wrap up the end of Nicolas Cage movie month. Uh, we're going to watch a, a new Cage movie. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to tell you right now, this might not be welcome news for you. Yeah. But I put up the poll between Willie's Wonderland and Mandy. And Mandy is just absolutely running away with the vote. Yeah. 69% right now. Nice. Seems like we're going to uh, be watching Mandy. Are we going to try yeah. to get that done this week, too? Or are we going to kick that down the road? I can get it done this week if you can. Okay. I got no travel scheduled. I should be here. I might just have to take a uh, some barbiturates, calm myself down, and then we'll just watch this horror movie real quick. I, You're in for a ride, man. I kind of hate it when you say that. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you over at patreon.com slash co-main event the rest of the week and one week from today back here again for the proper. Thanks for listening. For right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. Now we're talking like horror horror or like a, no. like a psychological horror. I know I've seen Nicolas Cage covered in blood. I've seen all that from the, uh, the previews. But uh, I'm coming in a little bit blind. I don't know if I should watch the trailer or not. No, don't don't do that. This movie defies genre descriptions. I'll say that. But I will also say it's instructive for us because it features maybe the most Nick Cage scene ever, and it's a scene in which the only person is Nick Cage.